Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual Summer Writers Conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, El Presidente, Emeritus. Thank you, Gertrude, and hola, listeners. Welcome to Episode 18 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Richards. This week, we're dipping our crumpets back into the literary tea, as it were. And by that, I mean we're playing another of our patented recorded live readings taken from the literary tea series going on at the Greenbrier Valley Theater in Lewisburg. This time, though, instead of playing a reading from a classic literary tea from years past, we're playing one recorded last week. For those of you who missed podcast episode 17, the Literary Tea Series is an annual month-long event sponsored by the Greenbrier Valley Theater and West Virginia Writers. The Literary Teas run each Thursday in October at 5.30. During them, members of the public serve as the audience sipping fine tea and eating tasty baked goods while actors from the theater and winners of West Virginia Writers' annual writing contest perform live readings. Last week, the readers were Greenbrier Valley Theater musical director Jeremy Finn Smith and West Virginia writer's own Belinda Anderson. I was there to record both sets of stories and to introduce Belinda. Now, I do plan to eventually play Jeremy Finn Smith's reading from a D.H. Lawrence story as a future bonus episode of this podcast. But this week, we're going to hear two pieces that Belinda Anderson read as part of her reading during last week's Literary Tea. Belinda Anderson has written for quite a number of publications, including West Virginia Encyclopedia, Golden Seal, Wonderful West Virginia, and locally for the Greenbrier Valley Quarterly, among others. She conducts writing and educational workshops around the state and is a recipient of a professional development grant from West Virginia Division of Culture and History. In 2004, she was inducted into the ranks of those authors uh, and literary figures who appear on the official literary map of West Virginia. And in 2005, she was the recipient of West Virginia Writers' Just Uncommonly Good Award for her role in mentoring writers in Greenbrier County. You received a jug and everything. It was empty. <laughs> That's the question every year. They give the jug, and whoever gets it is like, <clears throat> uh, Mountain State Press has published her first three collections of short stories, uh, which you're probably familiar with. If not, we invite you to step next door at some point and pick up one of them. Uh, the Well Ain't Dry Yet came out in 2001. The Bingo Cheaters was 2006. And her latest is Buffalo Buttercup, which came out just last year. Uh, she's now branched out from uh, adult fiction and is moving into more uh, children's books. And in fact, this year she won second place and third place in West Virginia Writers' children's book category in our annual writing contest for her books, uh, Fly Away Story and Jackson versus Double W Making Kids Soup. She's going to be reading from each of those tonight, I believe. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, Belinda Anderson. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I am going to read two short pieces. The first is a picture book manuscript. It was written for children, but if you love books, and I think that you must if you're here at a literary tea, I hope you'll enjoy it too. It's called Flyaway Story. Deep in a hollow, hidden in the hills, lived a girl named Sarah with a magical gift. 
She made books that flew. Making books didn't look like magic. It looked like hard work. First, Sarah stapled blank pages together. Then she glued the pages to book covers. Next, she placed the book in a wooden press and waited for the glue to dry. When she took the book out of the press, the magic began. She would pick up her favorite pen, made from a feather dropped by a crow. For ink, she used the juice of plump purple plums. She wrote funny stories, tales of danger, and tales of long ago. Always, she made sure to end each story with a bit of happiness. Then she whispered, fly away story, and watched as soft golden wings or pretty pink feathers or bright blue feathers popped out of the book's spine. The stories flew high into the sky, looking for readers. Sarah's big brother, Buster, did not find her talent remarkable or wonderful. All your stories have happy endings. Why don't you write about real life? Happiness is real, Sarah said. In every book she always wrote, published in Happy Hollow. <laughs> Where do those books go anyway, her brother asked. To the moon? All I know is every story finds its readers, Sarah said. And by the way, did you know your t-shirt is on backwards? <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for breakfast the next morning, Sarah sat at the kitchen table, writing a story about a lost dog who finds a new home. Her mother, standing at the stove and cooking oatmeal, asked, why don't you write something useful like 101 uses for aluminum foil? You could sell that. We could use the extra money. Every story finds its reader, Sarah said. By the way, did you know your pot is boiling over? <laughs> at supper the next evening, Sarah's grandfather complained about the potato soup. There's more water than taters. We're a little low on potatoes, Sarah's mother said. You know we didn't have a very good harvest. Sarah's grandfather frowned at her. Oh, you write something practical, like a book on growing taters. His beard dragged in his bowl of potato soup. But Sarah didn't say anything. After supper, Sarah walked to the creek near her house and sat on the bank, trying to finish a story about a shy boy who learns how to make friends. It wasn't a useful book of household hints or gardening advice, but maybe it would help someone who was feeling all alone. When she finished, she whispered, Flyaway story. The book grew rainbow-colored wings and soared into the air, flying quickly toward the setting sun. Sarah walked home very slowly, thinking hard. Maybe she should start writing a different kind of book, something more practical. That night, Sarah couldn't sleep, so she got out of bed and started a story about a sad little girl and wrote herself a happy ending. Flyaway story, she whispered. Silver wings softly fluttered, then lifted the book and carried it out the window into a star-filled sky. Sarah was very tired the next day, but it was Saturday, and on Saturday she always picked up the mail. Her family lived on a gravel road about a mile from the highway where the mailbox stood. But just as Sarah slipped on her shoes, the mailman came roaring up in his truck. He jumped out and started hauling postal sacks from the bed of his truck. What's all this, Sarah's mother said. We didn't order anything. Maybe your daughter did, the mailman said. Everything has her name on it. Oh, no, really, I didn't, Sarah started to say. But Buster was already opening the sacks. Look at this. Buster held up a huge bag of potatoes from Idaho. And here's a letter to Sarah and Happy Hall from some guy who says he got a big kick out of your pirate story. There were jars of jam, tins of cookies, 
wheels of cheese, and even more. All gifts from people thanking Sarah for her stories. Her grandfather found a bag of quarters. There must be $20 in here, he said, handing her another letter. Dear Sarah, it said, I was feeling so sad I couldn't sleep, and your book flew right into my bedroom. Reading it made me feel happier. I'm sending you all the allowance I saved so you can keep writing books. Huh, Buster said. I thought all those books were just taking up space on the moon. <laughs> Sarah smiled, already thinking of her next tale about a girl who follows her heart. Every story finds its reader, she said. By the way, you're wearing one yellow sock and one orange sock. <laughs> that is the end. <laughs> The second piece I'm going to read to you began as a story that I was telling to my great-nephew, Andrew. We were playing a game in which we had to build a story out of randomly chosen nouns, which was quite a challenge. But the next thing I knew, I was writing a middle-grade fantasy, and I'd like to share the prologue with you. I've never had a title quite like this, Jackson versus Double W, Making Kids Soup. <laughs> So here's the prologue to that. The wind and the huge gray cloud tried to warn the town. First, they swept over a boy at the railroad depot. He looked up at the darkening sky and shivered, even though it was a warm October afternoon. Cloud shadow covered the train depot, dimming the usually cheery pumpkin orange building with its frosty white trim. Wind pushed the cloud across the street just as an officer emerged from the police station. He whipped the sunglasses off his broad face, frowned at the sky, and retreated back inside. Glass Glen, nestled in a mountain valley, was the kind of town that prided itself on being small. It did not take long for the cloud and the wind to travel down Railroad Avenue, past the barbershop, post office, fire station, pharmacy, and bank. They turned the corner, moving past City Hall, Upon reaching the big stone church founded in 1777, they hesitated, turned, and crossed the street, traveling back the way they had come. Cloud lingered to lengthen the shadows of the tombstones propped against the wall of the funeral home. Wind whipped at the sign reading, Easy Payment Plans, Inquire Inside. A cat hiding behind one of the tombstones hissed at them, feeling very proud of itself when they moved along to Dewey's department store. Wind paused to swirl before the display window. Inside stood a woman wearing a suit a shade darker than the orange train depot. Her eyes of pale blue, her hair flat, one hand on her hip as though she were fed up with everyone and everything. She did not breathe. She did not blink at the miniature tornado of dried brown leaves that the wind commanded to dance before the glass. Finally perceiving that the woman was a life-sized doll, the wind and cloud continued on to the grocery store, then halted, having arrived once again at the railroad tracks. Suddenly, the crossing lights began to flash red. A long, loud whistle announced the imminent arrival of a train. The cloud retreated to hover over the gold and red wooded hill that lay just beyond the grocery and department stores and funeral home. Sighing, the wind lifted and followed. The town was on its own. So that's the prologue. And I'm thinking of, it's just a bit, it might be fun just to read you the introduction to the character. So 
it won't take long and I might do that as well. So here would be the start of chapter one. Jackson McKinney lurked behind the train depot, crouching, trying to lure his prey out of hiding with the chicken tender he'd saved from his school lunch. He knew his parents would be esteemed as the limp broccoli the school cafeteria had served if they discovered what he was doing. By the way, kids always laugh when I mention limp broccoli. <laughs> his parents would say they couldn't afford to pay for pet food and rabies shots. Then they'd add that he wasn't responsible enough for a pet, even though he was 10. And anyway, he'd rather have a dog. But Jackson couldn't stand to watch the little black and white cat grow skinnier and skinnier. He'd first seen it darting past the pharmacy when he was walking home from school one day. Another day he saw it being chased by the fluffy feline that thought it owned the police station. Then he'd spotted the little cat hiding in the shadow of the funeral home, but it had run away when he tried to approach it. Only a miscreant would let a defenseless animal starve to death. Miscreant. What a great word. He discovered it after getting punished for calling one of his classmates a bad word for making fun of Jackson's hearing aid. Next time, Jackson had told Rodney he was just a miserable miscreant. Rodney, not knowing what the word meant, but knowing he had been insulted, reported Jackson to the teacher. Mr. Campbell merely congratulated Jackson on his vocabulary. <laughs> just as the little cat had begun to creep forward, head raised, sniffing at the smell of the chicken, the shriek of a whistle sent it running. Jackson sighed and stood, watching the sleek silver train approaching the station. Idly, he rummaged through his pockets. In one lay the candy bar that the train station manager had given him. He planned to stash it in his room just in case his mom served zucchini soup, again for supper. In the other pocket rested the lucky penny his grandfather had given him when Grandpa was having one of his good days. The coin was an Indian head penny with a picture of a Native American wearing a headdress instead of the usual portrait of Abraham Lincoln. Liberty paraded in print across the band of the headdress. Indian head pennies hadn't been minted for nearly a hundred years. Jackson was pretty sure the penny was valuable because his parents had made a big deal over how special the gift was. He was supposed to keep it on a display stand in his bedroom. But Jackson figured the penny could only bring him luck if he was carrying it. So far it hadn't helped him catch the cat. Maybe the coin had to be rubbed at the exact moment luck was needed. He'd have to test that theory the next time he saw the cat. The wind made him wish he'd worn his heavier jacket like his mom had wanted, but it was just the first week in October. Pushed along by the breeze, a flock of fallen orange and yellow leaves scurried across the tracks just as the train arrived. Only one passenger came down the steps, making a bumpity-bump-bump -bump bracket with her big black bag. The woman was beautiful in a terrible way, tall with lots and lots of wavy red hair and eyes so dark they swallowed the afternoon sunlight. She caught Jackson staring at her. My name, she said in a voice like slow running molasses, is what you wanted, and I have come to add some interest to this town. <laughs> <laughs> when I was first making up this When I was first making up the story and trying off the top of my head to, to come up with the elements and one that was supposed to be a witch in a train, and when I stepped off the train and described her, his eyes got big and my eyes got big. <laughs> this is going to be an interesting person.
Greenbrier Valley Theater's literary tea series continues each Thursday this month. Yesterday, for instance, West Virginia writer's own Willa Izzo read her honorable mention-winning story, Volunteer Coach. This coming Thursday, Sarah Crickenberger will read her short story, Fixing Fried Turtle, which won second place in our short story competition this year. And on October 22nd, our new regional representative for the area, Tim Armentrout, will read from his book-length poem entitled, Someone Screaming Out. On October 29th, the theater will host a kids' literary tea, and on November 5th, poets from far and wide are invited to come in for the annual community poetry reading tea. Again, the literary teas take place at 5.30 each Thursday in October at the Greenbrier Valley Theater in downtown Lewisburg. Belinda Anderson can be found online at BelindaAnderson.com. There you can find a list of her upcoming workshops and appearances. One I can mention here is that she'll be one of the workshop presenters at this year's summer conference. Her short story collections are widely available online, and if you're in the Lewisburg area and would like to get your hands on copies of it, the bookstore I referred to in my introduction to her is The Open Book, which is located next door to the Greenbrier Valley Theater. They stock not only Belinda's books, but also West Virginia writers' own collections, Seeking the Swan, which is actually a place you can find some more Belinda Anderson material, since she won the 1998 novel competition we held for a novel she wrote called Pitching Dimes, and there are a couple of chapters of that manuscript available in Seeking the Swan. Speaking of our annual writing contest, it's not going to open for submissions until January 2, 2010, but the contest entry form itself debuts this very weekend at the West Virginia Book Festival in Charleston. That's going to be your first chance to have a look at the categories offered in the contest this year, such as the return of one of our more popular categories from years past. We've also restructured our annual writing competition for kids and have retitled it the New Mountain Voices Student Writing Contest. There's some other changes to how that contest is run, but I'll have no spoilers of that information right here. Instead, if you're unable to make the book festival and see it for yourself, we'll have that information on the West Virginia Writers website starting October 16th. If you can make it to the book festival, West Virginia Writers always has a table there and is sponsoring a writing workshop being led by Jeff and Karen Fuller. Jeff is an editor and novelist who is also the only person to win the West Virginia Arts Fellowships in all three prose categories, fiction, nonfiction, and memoir. He frequently teaches writing workshops and recently had an essay on writing horror published in Woodland Press's educational volume, The Writer's Workshop of Horror. He was also the recipient of one of West Virginia Writers' 2009 Just Uncommonly Good Awards. His wife, Karen Fuller, is an award-winning lifestyle columnist for the Charleston Gazette. Along with her columns, Karen's stories have appeared in such publications as Woman's World, Appalachian Heritage, Front Porch, and Atlanta Baby. Her work has also won a number of awards in West Virginia Writers' Annual Writing Contest. Their workshop is entitled Putting Flesh on the Bones, How Writers Create Character and Story from Memories. It will be held tomorrow at 2 p.m. Coming up in a very near future of the podcast, we'll be speaking with poet Cheryl Denise, author of the excellent poetry collection, I Saw God Dancing. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at popswalker.com. If you have comments or suggestions about the podcast, or if you have a recorded live reading of your own you'd like to send us, we can be reached by email at wvwpodcast at gmail.com. This program has been produced by Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded at the Mr. Herman Studios atop a hill in Mercer County.